Hey there, everyone, it's Jeff from MCS Mag, and welcome to podcast episode number 246. Now, this week we're going to go beyond all that one size fits all emergency plans that you find out there and help you really fine tune your own plan based upon your personal geographic location and the individual challenges and threats that you may face in your area. But I know what you're thinking, well, Jeff, what if I'm not in my area when a disaster or other crisis hits? Or what if I have to evacuate my area and travel through other locations? All great questions, and you'll find all the answers in this week's interview with survival and tactical expert, Russ Adler. But first, don't worry about taking notes because we've done all the heavy lifting for you with this week's free cheat sheet covering all the main points. All you have to do is go to www.mcsmagazine.com slash 246 and download it all absolutely free. And now, let's get on with the show. Tactical firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. This, this is another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is Modern Combat and Survival. What do you think of when you visualize your own personal disaster response plan? What do you picture when you think about either sheltering in place in your home or bugging out as part of a forced evacuation? Well, that picture changes depending upon if you're living out in the country or if you're sunk deep inside of a city, right? And of course, so do the challenges and threats you would face depending upon your location. In other words, all the wilderness survival gear in the world won't be very helpful if that wilderness that you find yourself in is made of glass, steel, and concrete. Then again, if your survival plan is based on the fact that you've lived in a major city all your life, you won't do very well if you're suddenly stumbling through the woods on the outskirts of the city's suburbs as the sun starts to go down. Now, failing to take your environment into account, failing to accurately gauge your own personal survival threat matrix could be a critical mistake in building out your survival plan. In the world of survival, making a mistake could mean life or death for you and those you love and who are depending upon you to protect them. So how do we accurately assess the threats our environment poses? And how do we plan for environmental considerations in building our survival plan? Well, that's what we've come to learn today. Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Anderson, editor for Modern Combat and Survival Magazine and executive director of the New World Pitch Alliance with another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. And with us today, once again, to talk about your survival threat matrix this time is Russ Adler. Russ, welcome back to the program, man. Thanks, Jeff. It's uh, great to be back, and I appreciate you having me on again. Well, this is a really good topic for you because I know you, you've got a lot of experience in a lot of different environments, so that's why I'm really excited. I think this was a perfect topic for, for reaching out to you and getting you back on the show here. I'm really looking forward to it. So listen, everybody, if you haven't uh, heard any of our other interviews with Russ or if you're not a member of the New World Patriot Alliance where we did a, a, an in-depth masterclass uh, with him, um, he is a retired law enforcement officer with 28 years of training in tactical leadership experience. Now, he's worked with police, military, private security personnel, and citizens in the use of firearms in hand-to-hand combatives and emergency first aid and in tactical and evasive driving. Now, Russ is the director of Adler & Associates International, a registered government contractor with training operations in the United States and overseas. His company trains military personnel and contractors in a variety of advanced mission-critical courses like small unit tactics, high-performance off-road tactical driving, and other combat-oriented skills. Although much of Russ's training experience has been with military and law enforcement personnel, his experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan have offered him a unique perspective on how to survive in unknown surroundings under extreme conditions. Now, this background has provided him with a unique foundation for working with disaster response teams in some of the most hard-hit crisis zones in the U.S. and abroad, including security and response missions in New Orleans following Hurricane Katrina and during the post-disaster collapse in Puerto Rico following Hurricane Maria. Now, to learn more about Russ and his training, make sure that you visit him online at www.fastnation.us. All right, Russ. So, I mean, this is a uh, this is a complicated topic, I think, for a lot of people, because when I, I think when you go out looking for how to put together your survival plan, um, there's a lot of one size fits all programs out there, right? Like, you know, you know, this is how you survive bugging out. This is how you survive sheltering in place, and it never really takes into account um, your own personal. Uh, kind of going down the checklist of what different threats you might find in those areas or what challenges you might experience in your specific location. It's really not a one-size-fits-all thing. So so my, I guess where I wanted to start with this was what are the top considerations that, um, you know, somebody should really take into account for customizing their plan? And, and, and what, you know, what are some of the reasons why they would, why they would do that? Why would, why would their geographical location uh, really be an issue? 
Well, you know, not to make a pun, but pun intended, there, there's three reasons. And real estate has it nailed down, like they say, location, location, location. Where do you live? Where are you at when the bottom falls out? And what is your plan? The key is having a plan. You hit the nail on the head by saying that there is no one size fits all. That's like, you know, there's ad nauseum plethora of bug out bags on the internet, on YouTube. You know, what does your bug out bag consist of? Well, I've got three of them. Uh, some people that I know have four or five of them. There's one for a multitude of different scenarios or one for each type of scenario that you might face. Uh, one of the main things to consider is whether or not you're going to shelter in place or bug in and whether or not you're going to bug out. Sometimes that choice is already made for you and you need to be prepared and have a plan for each scenario. Nobody wants to leave their home or their castle. So that's your primary objective. Uh, following the PACE model, you need an alternative plan, a contingency plan, and an emergency plan. Your environment is kind of dictative of that. It's going to decide for you in many cases, and the more variables that you have checked off your list, have prepared for, and have certain items ready for each of those scenarios is going to be your key to survival, or what I like to call survival. Because let's face it, surviving surviving kind of sucks. It's tough. It's even tougher if you're not prepared and you don't plan accordingly. Yeah. So what are some, I mean, some of those considerations, I mean, what comes out to me is like gear is one of the things, right? Because like you're talking about, um, depending on what environment you're in, you might need different gear for those types of environments. And then also, like you said, the bug out bag or what kind of survival, you know, what kind of survival kit you put together. So there is the gear inside of there. And then also seems like training. I know you do a lot of training, even, um, you know, it's hard to find real like survival training these days, but, but that also comes to mind as one of the considerations, because if you're, you might have all the best wilderness survival gear in the world, but if you can't use it, if you can't start a fire, if you're in a more remote area, um, because you don't know how to use that, you know, just the, the flint and steel as an example, sort of a thing. Um, so it seems like all of that has has a, a lot to do with it as well, right? Oh, absolutely. It, you know, and, and going back to the, you know, three keys or three pillars, um, one of the things I like to say, and, and everybody talks about it, beans. <laughs> yeah. Bullets. <laughs> And band-aids. Band-aids. Yeah, got it. So <laughs> right. you, you gotta you gotta have food for sustainment. You gotta have a way to protect that food and sustainment because your neighbors or your friends or the people down the road that are starving because they failed to to prepare properly are gonna be knocking on your door and, and that's gonna cut your supplies exponentially. So you, you gotta have a way and a plan to deal with those types of folks, as well as dealing with yourself. You brought up a good point with the flint and steel. If you bought a whiz-bang, you know, $150, you know, flash fire starter that works in the rain and in the wind every time, if you've never tried it and don't know the nuances of how to do it properly, you might struggle with that. Uh, if you don't know how to gather firewood or, or cut into the wood to take the, the wet layer off to find some dry tender, so to speak, you might have a problem with that. Uh, and going out into the wilderness to survive, you know, like a lot of people consider bugging out is just throwing a backpack on and hitting the woods. That's unrealistic. You'll, you'll die in a couple of days if, unless you're a wilderness survival expert. You know, if you've been to schools like, you know, the Boulder Outdoor Survival School or, or some of these other great notoriety, uh, no, notorious firms and training companies that specialize in that, you know, mountain survival, desert survival, you know, surviving in the ocean, unless you've been to those and have taken, you know, a couple weeks at a time and have sustainment training on a regular basis, those skills are worthless to you in a survival situation. Yeah. Yeah. Even just the things you brought up about like, you know, um, 
you know, beans, bullets, and band-aids, the, the food that you, like all of these things really make a difference uh, depending upon where you're at. If you have to leave and you have a whole cellar full of sacks of flour, doesn't do you a whole lot of good, right? So I guess, you know, I mean, so when people are really looking to like fine tune their, their own, per, like customize their plan, which I think is really the, the best idea here. It, um, in looking at the environments that they're in, that's what I'm really curious about, like how people change that. So let's, I mean, let's go ahead and start off with, I mean, a lot of people live in the country. So um, we don't, we don't often think of these as danger areas. In fact, they seem like they're the safe zones, right? Because I don't have, you know, looters around me and I, you know, I can look outside and I don't even see my neighbor for miles. And yet there might be, there might be challenges with that also. So let's start with, with that for those people that do live in, in rural areas. Um, what are some of the, the parameters that people that live in these, uh, in these rural areas, they, that they need to consider specific to their plan? Okay, so so let you know. Let's go back to World War II as we talk about that. So, when the Nazis were bombing France <clears throat> and the city centers were being evacuated because they became untenable, the the distance that people would travel and it was mainly on foot because there wasn't enough fuel to use vehicles. Not everybody had vehicles. The average distance was twelve miles outside of city centers. And it was like a herd or a flock or whatever the proper term would be of locusts just consuming every bit of material that was of value, whether it was food, <clears throat> crops, uh, shelter, materials for shelter. That was consumed very rapidly out to a 12-mile radius. Well, with vehicles these days, you know, you're looking at most vehicles can go 300 miles on a tank of gas. <clears throat> and if your average person has a, ha a tank that's half full, you're talking 150 mile radius of evacuation areas within city centers. So rural areas become urban areas very quickly. Mm. Uh, so that's a, that's a myth or a misnomer that if you live out in the country, you're safe. That, that's true to a degree, depending on where you live. If you live down a backcountry road, you know, that you got to make three or four turns to get to, that's going to discourage people who are on main highways trying to get out into the country to find resources once they're, they've all been consumed within the urban areas and the city centers. But the second thing is, if you live in a rural area and you haven't properly prepared, where are you going to go to find resources? You're going to go right into the mix where the hive of activity is, where everything's being consumed at an astronomical rate. So there's a couple things to consider going back to the beans, bullets, and band-aids. You got to have enough sustainment, at least three months worth. Statistics have shown, the recent disasters have shown, uh, Puerto Rico was horrible. I was there for three months myself and, and they still weren't even close to getting on their feet. They weren't even to the sitting up phase of recovering from that disaster and they're still going through some hassles and, and hardships today which has been over a year later uh same thing with new orleans and katrina that that place has not fully recovered from katrina when it hit so these are all considerations your personal planning and your way to protect your preparations as far as your sustainment supplies uh the environment around you what are you going to consume in your immediate area if you live in a rural zone? Uh, are, you, are you out of power? Are you having to use wood in a fireplace or in a grill to cook? How much wood do, do you have around you? Have you cleared all the trees out in the underbrush? How far are you going to have to travel to get these resources? How much of your area has been affected by whatever catastrophic event may have occurred? So these are all layered approach considerations. Hmm. Yeah, it seems even like when you consider actually like around your home. So, I mean, we just went through some horrific wildfires, you know, not too long ago in California. And you just made me think of it there when you, uh, if you're, if you don't clear the underbrush, well, that was one of the reasons, you know, that's one of the, that's like basically giving tinder for the fire. And so, um, you know, do you have enough space between your home and, and the, and the wood line uh, that you would be able, if a fire was headed your way, is it going to like just roar right through straight to your home and just be at your, your back doorstep uh, in, in a matter of seconds? Or is it going to be something that you can, you know, there's time there for somebody to respond, first responders to get there, maybe even save your home, uh, things like that. Obviously, if it's getting that close, you'd want to bug out. But again, that's going to lead us to, if we have to leave, are we prepared to do that? The other thing I thought about that was really interesting when you were talking about how 
Um, you know, the, the urban centers, that, that sprawl that comes out when the resources are, are gone there, your, your rural area may end up becoming a more urban area and have people coming through there looking for resources. And so that was something, I mean, I live out in a rural area, right? And so um, while I don't have my neighbors right, right next to me, and I like that, right? I can literally walk from my house to my to my office in my underwear. So I'll burn that in everybody's brain right now. <laughs> so uh, so there's that. But then the challenge of that is, if there are people on my property, there's no there's no like neighborhood watch system that's going to be able to tell me, hey, you've got five people that are creeping around the outside of your home. And so one of the things that I've personally done to be able to uh, mitigate that that threat is put in early detection systems around my property. So they're wireless, they're solar based, and they basically just let me know that I have I have a a signal in my home and I have it. It's portable. I can take it wherever I go, but it'll let me know when somebody passes by those major avenues because I have a, a couple different avenues onto my property. And so, um, but I can do that. It's got a really good range to it, and that allows. And it's really inexpensive. This is something that doesn't cost like a, a bunch of money. But those are just some some ways that me living in a rural area that I've had to, now I've lived in both so I've got I've had to I've had to do exactly what you're talking about which is to fine tune my program based upon the different areas I'm either traveling in or I'm I'm living in because right now I'm also up in Chicago so I'm in a, I'm in an urban area um, as well um, you know here I'm here for a lot I'm, I'm business also so. So it's really interesting. So um, listen, everybody, as you can see, this is really important for you to really kind of consider your own your own program out there. And we're talking with Russ Adler of FastNation.us about how to customize your own survival threat matrix based upon that location that you do live in and even beyond the place that you live in. And then we obviously have a lot more coming up in our interview, including urban survival, little known threats that even city folk might not even have on their radar austere environments. What are they and what do you need to know about what you'll face in these zones? And also the er, the ultimate bug out survival matrix. How to make sure that you can survive in any environment under any conditions when moving in and out of unknown areas. All that and more coming right up. But first, check out this special message. In any disaster, crisis or attack, your life and the life of those you love could solely rest on the survival gear you've acquired. Do you have the proper gear to protect you from the threats you'll face? Whether it's preparing your home against the destruction and mayhem of a city in chaos, or you're bugging out to a safer location when a natural disaster forces you from your home, the supplies you have right now could ensure your survival or seal your fate. Don't take the risk. Claim your free copy of our exclusive guide, Survival Gear Secrets, at survivalgearsecrets.com and discover the seven-phase survival gear plan every family must prepare for or face the consequences. Five no-bullshit warning signs that a collapse is headed your way, so you're already in action long before your neighbors even know what hit them and how to know exactly when it's safer to stay at home and shelter in place. Or get in the family bug out mobile and get the hell out of Dodge. Your fellow citizens may be fine with sleeping in a crowded stadium waiting for FEMA to hand them a granola bar, juice box, and a blankie. But you know that no one can protect your family better than you can if you're properly prepared with the right supplies and equipment to ensure your survival. Don't wait until it's too late. Find out what's missing from your survival gear plan by grabbing your free copy of Survival Gear Secrets now at www.survivalgearsecrets.com. And now, back to our show. Okay, we're back with Russ Adler of FastNation.us talking about how to fine-tune your own personal survival plan based upon geographical zones that you may live in or find yourself in before, during, and after a crisis. Now, we've got a lot of, we have a lot more to get up into the uh, into this interview here, so let's go ahead and jump back in. I can't even talk today, man. It's like it's like it's uh, I'm completely tongue-tied. This is too early, I think, for me to start trying to spit stuff out. Listen, Russ, it does. It totally feels like a Monday. Um, Listen, Russ, something I think a lot of people don't consider is that most of us don't live in the wilderness. Most of us are living in some sort of inhabited area, like whether it's the suburbs or whether it is um, a city, a city environment. Uh, I think something that sometimes people think of urban survival as, you know, basically you're you're in downtown New York City. And if I'm not in downtown New York City, I don't really need to, to worry about it. But I think even those 
those suburban areas, they're also going to have similar challenges because basically you have a lot more people around you. So what would you say are the considerations from a survival standpoint in an urban area? Um, what, what, what should people that are living in these, these more populated areas have to uh, consider? Well, the, the main difference in living in an urban area and a rural area is people and, and people are threats. Uh, give you an example in New Orleans after Katrina hit, dogs became a problem, if you can imagine that. So there's a lot of pets in these city areas and a lot of people aren't even preparing for themselves, let alone their pets. So they turn them loose. What happens to dogs when you turn them loose and don't feed them? They become a pack and they attack. So that's a big consideration that that I you know took from a lesson learned and really harp on that with people is if you have pets, uh, they can become a threat if you don't plan accordingly for them as well as yourself. So you got to be prepared for that. Uh, you brought up a great point as far as an early warning system. Um, not only do you have to use or can you use an electronic type setup and it's great to have what you have as far as a solar backup you have redundancy and how that works but you know dumb technology in these types of scenarios works sometimes as good as better uh setting up a tripwire sit, uh, system with various munitions loud noises would tend to scare people off so that should be part of your security plan um you know your firearms you always want to use last because that's going to bring unwanted, you know, attention that's going to attract people, whether it be good guys or bad guys. Uh, you want to be as low profile and low key as possible. So as not to make yourself a target, uh, with a lot more people, a lot more obstacles, uh, that can be involved in a urban area, you have situations like sewers can contaminate drinking water very, very easily if they're not maintained. And during a catastrophic event, if the guys who maintain those systems go home to be with their families and a malfunction occurs, then everybody suffers exponentially. Uh, you have the greater chance of an epidemic, which is where your medical supplies would come in. Having, having strength in numbers you know, having either neighbors that you get along with and can discuss these topics with, uh, or at least having friends or family close by that you can have a location to retreat to. A lot of people look at retreat locations as rural areas. Let's bug out to the country and get to our retreat. Well, some circumstances and situations won't enable or allow you to get there. So sheltering in place or sheltering close to your main base of operations might be key in developing strength in numbers. It's like Sun Tzu said, be strong when you're weak and appear weak when you're strong. This is gonna throw any potential ne'er-do-wells or naysayers or bad persons that might look at you in another light from actually singling you out as a target. Yeah, and some other some other things that came to mind as you were talking about that because I mean people really are that threat, right? Like when resources are gone, I mean we know nobody else is preparing out there, right? Ninety nine percent of people aren't are around you, right? And I'm calling them bad. I'm using the term bad guys, but these may be good people that just didn't plan and are right. or you know acting out of desperation for themselves and or their children. Yeah. People do crazy things for their kids, and it may not seem so crazy in their mind while they're doing it. But the fact yeah. of the matter is, threats can come in all different shapes, forms, or sizes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I've had um, we've had people that have written to us uh, from well, if they go to our one of our workshops or something like that online, and they read one of our books, and uh, have come out with some amazing stories that were sh really shocking. I mean, it's not shocking because I've seen. Um, I tell people I've seen what happens in a city that's lost its infrastructure. You've seen what's happened. Um, it, both over overseas in combat as well as under these extreme circumstances after Katrina and, and in Puerto Rico. And what happens to people and how they transform is I think one of the biggest surprises I think people are going to notice those people that haven't been exposed to anything like that before. And we get we do get people that write in and talk about how um, they're prepared, like they have food and they have a generator and they like they they consider themselves prepared. But what they weren't prepared for was other people noticing that they were prepared. So, you know, one guy was saying that 
he, his refrigerator and freezer were working. So he went down to the grocery store where everybody was freaking out and actually had ice cream. Uh, and so people saw they had ice cream and it, was, and, it, and it almost started a riot inside of the grocery store because people were panicked. It's like, wait a minute, if you've got a freezer, you got something that we don't. And so I think that's really important for people that, you know, if you are in an area that has lost electricity, but you have a generator or you have emergency lighting in your home and you're lit up like a Christmas tree on the hill and everybody looks out there and says, wait a minute, this person is obviously better prepared than I am then you know let's uh, let's go check out and see what else they have out there you're you're really um setting yourself up and i think even i think even things that people wouldn't even it wouldn't even come to their mind but it's something in the military i mean you rush you were in the military also cigarette smoke you can smell that for i forgot what you know what our drill sergeants programmed into our head like even in basic training but like a mile away and so that if you think about it that is like a, it's a vice uh, habit, right? So if resources are down and people, you know, there's some people that will bypass food in order to get to a cigarette. So if you're outside of your home and you're smoking a cigarette and somebody can smell that and they haven't had a cigarette in three days because there's none left in the grocery store and every, and there's no resources coming back in, that's a potential threat. Somebody might start going around snooping around to see where's that coming from just so I can go quote unquote bum a cigarette and whatever else I can bum while I'm out there. So I know I just kind of rambled on there, but you're just, you're bringing all these things to my mind that even I hadn't thought of before that are now coming like, yeah, you know what? I should really consider these certain things um, in both in our training as well as for myself. You know, and, and you bring up a good point with the, with the cigarettes, alcohol too. It mm -hmm. is a big uh, issue. So uh, I'm going to tell a story. And if my friend hears this, he's going to know I'm talking about him. So I'm not going <laughs> to say his name. But, you know, he's got a strong room, which, which would rival anything that I have. But in this room, there's a stack of cases as tall as I am of alcohol, liquor bottles. And I said, hey, that's that's some good bartering stuff there. And he looked at me like I had lost my mind and said, <laughs> shoot bartering that's mine <laughs> so you know if he goes through all those cases during a bad scenario he's going to be hurting for certain if he <laughs> runs out anytime soon after that but people have these vices they have these needs and that's why i like to say you know i don't like to use the term survival or survivalist because that denotes that things are really hard and tough i, I like to use the term sir thrive because you know what surviving sucks you know, being deployed in the combat zone, that, that sucks. You know, some of the living's not bad as long as you don't have rockets coming in in your camp every night, as long as you're getting shot at. But, you know, just the fact that you're in an, a, a, an impossible environment or a post-disaster area where people have lost everything they've owned, that kind of living really sucks. So, you know, having your plan like we're talking about and having redundancy in these different levels of preparations, these are, these are key. You got to have them not just to survive, but to have the mental fortitude that you're going to make it. You're going to, you're going to make lemonade out of these lemons that have been presented to you. Yeah. So true. So true. Um, so, so look, Russ, I, I understand what a rural area is. I know what an urban area is. Um, but you have the, you have a course that you run for people. Um, it's the disaster insurgency recovery exercises or dire, and you specifically address austere areas. So what is an austere area and, and what are the survival plan considerations for this type of an environment? Okay, so an austere environment, most people consider an austere environment something like extremely rural, not, you know, beyond rural, rural, on top of a mountain, out in the middle of a desert, um, stuck on an island in the middle of the ocean. That's, that's not what an austere environment is. An austere environment can be a rural area, it can be an urban area, but what it's defined as is an area that has frequent environmental uh, considerations that adversely affect the population. So in a disaster area, a city center can be an austere environment. If it's lost all infrastructure or the majority of the infrastructure, the power, if there's blockage on the, on the thoroughfares and the freeways and the roadways, you know, that's considered an austere environment in a rural area. 
you know, if, uh, if a tornado's ravaged an area and made travel from one urban area to another, that can be considered an austere environment. So basically an austere environment is when you don't have any infrastructure or any kind of support for your daily sustainment or your lifestyle. Hmm. And so that could, that could change depending upon whatever phase of the disaster or post-disaster response is actually there, right? That makes it really challenging to, like, what are some of the considerations or what should be on somebody's radar when um, their, their environment changes? Like they were in a, in a, a um, I guess it's a good example is that you're in a suburban or not a suburban, like a more rural area. And then all of a sudden you get this influx. Maybe the Red Cross decides that, you know what, because you're a rural area, but you're in a good supply route, we're going to put up our FEMA camp right here. And so all of a sudden you've got military trucks and everything around. Is that what you're talking about? Like, is that, is that kind of change or is it really more of like a, um, an isolated area where there is no infrastructure and you're really, you're really out there on your own? No, you, you hit it on the head because, you know, let, let's, let's be honest here. A lot of people think that during these types of scenarios, and, and it happened in New Orleans after Katrina, you know, they'll set up checkpoints. There will be gun confiscations. A lot of people get bent out of shape about that. I myself included. I'm a big Second Amendment guy. But here's the thing. If you go through those areas, if you go through those checkpoints, if you go to one of these FEMA camps and register to stay there, they're going to select what you can and can't keep. And you know what? It's their option to do that. And it's your option to deny that help and move on about your business to another location. We talked about uh, in, in one of our other um, you know, interviews, the trainings and podcasts, we talked about convoy operations. Yeah. You know, your communication and having a plan. Th- th- these are all considerations with your plan. If you don't have enough beans, bullets, and band-aids, for lack of better terminology, if you don't have that in a layered approach, if you don't have a secondary location, going back to the alternative alternative and the contingency and the emergency, if you don't have at least a, a two-tier, let alone a four-tier plan for sustainment, which is going to include your food and water or a way to purify water or a way to capture food, if you don't have an area that you can go to that hasn't been affected, that will have these sustainment measures in place, along with protective measures, if you don't have this, you're at the mercy of whatever entity sets up a camp, so to speak, in, in said austere environment, you're bound and beholden to their rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people kind of like to live by their own rules. Uh, you know, we like to say we're a free country, but the bottom line is there's a lot of regulations and restrictions out there that prevent us from doing things that, um, we would normally otherwise do uh, one thing that just happened a few days ago, and I'm embarrassed to say it happened in my hometown is the guy having the obscene bumper sticker and got hauled to jail for it. Hmm. Was it right? Was it wrong? You know, people have their opinions on the first amendment and without the second amendment, there is no first amendment. But, but the bottom line is we live in a fairly restrictive society, not as restrictive as any other societies on the planet. Um, but there are restrictions involved. So having these plans, like how many people are in your party? Do you have, is it a husband and wife? Is it a husband, wife, and kids? How many people are you responsible for? If you're responsible for yourself, that's great. That's easy to a degree. But then again, without a support system, you don't have the protection you need for your, for yourself. Uh, If you have a family, if it's a young family, you know, traditionally the male, if you have a, a, a spouse that's on board with you, you know, their strength in those two people, two is one and one is none. We've talked about that before as well. But having the supplies, I said this earlier, at least three months, you know, three years worth of supplies, that's even better. But the bottom line is you got to be able to eat. You got to be able to protect the food that you're going to eat. If you have pets, you got to prepare for them. Don't just turn them loose because they can become a threat to society as well. And it's just not right because they're part of your family as well. And then you got to have a way to protect it and you got to have a way to travel. So we talked about earlier, just as a quick recap, you know, if you live in a rural area, but you have to go into an urban area for supplies, 
There's fuel considerations. Do you have enough fuel stored to make two or three trips into town and back? Uh, what kind of vehicle do you have? Is it an older vehicle that it's on its last legs that you have wear and tear considerations? How much gas do you keep in the tank at a time to where if you needed to leave in a moment's notice, do you have enough fuel you can throw in the trunk or on a hitch hauler or strapped to the roof that's going to get you where you want to go as far as a secondary location or a retreat area or find your family and friends that you've already had a predetermined plan with? These are all part of the complex planning that, that we're discussing and trying to push that information out there. And the, the last part of this thought is, I know I'm kind of rambling, so I'll, I'll shut up for a second, but you mentioned the Dyer course that I do. I've got one coming up, and we, we talk about this. We tell people, bring what you would consider your bug-in plan and your bug-out plan. Whatever you can carry in your vehicle, if you've got a bug-out bag or two or three, or if you've got some you know, some food storage stuff. You brought up earlier having a bunch of sacks of flour in there. Well, that's fine, well, and good. That's hard to transport. But if you're in a shelter-in-place scenario and you've never made a loaf of bread or you've never made a homemade pie, those sacks of flour are 50-pound are freaking dumbbells or, or taking up, un, you know, space that something else could be utilized better. Yeah. Yeah, so true. This is why it's so it's so important for everybody to really kind of, um, and I like that. Like, bring your plan. One, I like that it, it actually makes people like think about. Oh, wait, I don't really have like a plan. Plan. I guess I have to come up with something. So, uh, but that's this is why we're doing this. So, um, so Russ, I, I started out the interview talking about how there is no one size fits all plan for survival, and that it can change depending upon the the environment that you're in. And really this, you know, from a shelter in place standpoint, it's really looking at where do you live? What's the environment like there? And what are my considerations I need if I'm going to shelter in place here? But as we said, you might, that, you, you said it earlier, the, the decision might be made for you whether or not you can stay in that shelter in place plan that you have. So if there's a, a, a hurricane coming that way, well, you got a decision point to make there. But if there's a wildfire that's going to roll right through your, your home, you know, are you really want to sit in your living room watching The Simpsons while the, you know there's a, fire, a wildfire headed your way? So you could conceivably have to have to leave your area. You might have to bug out to another location, and that could be, especially if it's a large scale collapse or anything like that. You could be moving in and out of all of these zones. You could be into, you know, uh, you might live in a rural area, but you've got to pass through, um, or you you you're going through an area that you don't see as urban, but all of a sudden it became an urban area from the sprawl from a disaster zone in an urban area. And you might have to go through checkpoints. You might have to, you know, make that decision of whether you're going to give up your gun or not. So, so obviously the, the, the next level of this is really um, going outside of even your geographic zone and in, in your threat matrix and expanding it to be able to, to survive in any environment under any conditions. And so how does somebody do that? How does somebody level up their plan once they've really got their, their own location down What's the next level they should go to to be prepared for all of these different areas? Jeff, in, in all my experiences in two combat zones and several national disasters, the two biggest ones that I've been involved in were, were Katrina and Maria, New Orleans and Puerto Rico, respectively. In my experience, the, the key to having any plan, whether it's a shelter in place, bugging in or bugging out, is having a space dedicated to your preparations. And I, I like to call them the four pillars of survival. <laughs> and, and I kind of like that because, uh, like I said, you know, being uncomfortable sucks. So the, the first one is preparedness. And that, that's general. That's your kind of one-size-fits-all attitude. And what that deals with when you're talking about preparedness is your mental, your physical, and your emotional well-being. And that comes from establishing a plan and knowing, having the confidence that you can execute that plan when and as needed. Um, you know, as far as these four pillars, uh, they can also be the four Ps because the next one is provisions. And that deals with your beans, your bullets, and band-aids. Have enough food for everybody in your party, your family, your group to last at least three months. I like, I like the three-year idea. There's plenty of food storage companies out there that have good, good freeze-dried food, food that will last 25-plus years. And there's some good food out there. I have some of it. Uh, some friends have it. And we try and, you know, two or three times a year, we make a meal out of it. So we're used to it. We know what to expect if we're forced to, 
resolve to those provisions until we can establish uh, another way as far as growing a garden and harvesting meat from various animals uh, around the area. The the next part or the next uh, P in that phase is going to be your power um, as far as survival. You know, some people can get by without power. They can go out in the woods and be comfortable. I'm not that guy. I, I like my electronics. I like having light when I want it. Uh, I like having a little bit of air conditioning. I live in Florida. It gets pretty hot and humid in the summer. Uh, we've had 80 degree Christmases here, uh, <laughs> which is not pleasant. So power, you know, you need a refrigerator. If you've got people on medication, you want to store milk, uh, anything that you want to have leftovers for. Power is a key ingredient in thriving during a, during a survival or a disaster or any type of catastrophic event scenario uh, and redundancy in power. So you had mentioned solar. That's a great plan uh, generator, but you got to have enough fuel. You got to have the wherewithal and the experience and the know-how to maintain that generator. They're not meant to run for three months at a time. We found this out in Maria these industrial generators that were running hotels and medical clinics, they had to shut down every couple of days for three or four hours for routine maintenance to be applied. And people weren't ready for that. That makes people uncomfortable for three or four hours while they're waiting for the air to come back on or the lights to come back on. And then you've got life-sustaining medical equipment keeping people alive. There has to be plans and redundancies for that in regards to the power. And then the last but not least, arguably maybe the most important part of that equation is protection. So you've got your preparedness, your power, your provisions, and now we're talking about protections. You've got to have a means to protect those items, the elements of your plan, and you got to train with it. You know, buying a rifle, whether it's a basic rifle like I showed you earlier or having a tricked out, you know, 15 to $2,500, you know, three gun master special you know, whiz bang doodad with all kinds of gadgets and gizmos. If you don't know how to use it, it's worthless to you. You know, a, a $500 rifle with $2,000 of training and experience with ammo and, and seeing other types, other instructors around the country and learning to, to develop and build your skill set with it is critical as opposed to just having, you know, a bunch of expensive kit that you don't have any idea of what the capabilities are because you don't know what your capabilities are with it. Uh, and then last, that's, that now that we're done with those pillars, is I feel it's very, very important to have some sort of way to transport the majority of that stuff and a cargo trailer is key. Now there's two, two people, they happen to be in my area. A lot of articles have been written about them. A lot of YouTube videos have been done, but you've got a gentleman, um, bug in, bug out outfitters. He, co he goes by Bebo outfitters. He has developed custom developed and designed a small cargo trailer that can sustain two people for 30 days. It's got food in it. It's got a power source in it with, redundancy. It's got a wind generator, a little windmill. It's got a solar panel that can keep the batteries charged that will power a bunch of functions in the trailer. And he designed it to where it would fit in a suburban styled home garage. So that trailer can be used as you're sheltering in place because it's got your provisions. Or if you're absolutely required or you have to bug out of the area, you hook it up, a mid-sized car, a small SUV, would pull it with very little gas mileage consumption. That's one option. The other option is another friend of mine has a company called Bug Out Trailers with a Z on the end of it. He, he designed and built a, a bigger trailer, which you need a truck to carry it, but it can hold enough supplies for 16 people for six months. And it's got indoor plumbing. Uh, he custom built that. Those are great items. Now, I, I've got one myself. I actually inherited this cargo trailer, and I've kind of purpose-built it for my wife and I. You know, it's a little workshop now when I need it. Uh, but truth be told, my wife and I and our four dogs actually lived in it. It's a 6 by 12 cargo trailer for six days after Hurricane Irma hit here in Florida. We had a generator. Uh, it's wired. It has an air conditioner. you got to have an air conditioner in Florida. And we had a king size blow up mattress that fits in it. So 
we had a cooler, a generator, and an air conditioning, and we had plenty of food, lived in it, had to live in it for six days after a hurricane hit. So that has been a lot of experience with 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 these different disasters, combat areas, you know, special operations troops. They use trailers similar as this to forward deploy, you know, on the edge of a combat zone to where they have a little bit of infrastructure. And that's a good model to follow. When when you see special operations guys doing something, that's a that's a, a clue up there that, hey, maybe that's a good idea if a catastrophic event ever hits near this area. And that's the takeaway that I would uh, advise people here. If you don't have something to carry what you need and a lot of it, get something like that. Uh, if you don't have the money to, to go to my friend at Bebo Outfitters or my other friend at Bug Out Trailers, get your own. It can be a covered trailer, a closed-in trailer. It could be an open trailer, something that you can put a lot of stuff in in a short amount of time and transport it 150 to 300 miles out of the affected area into a safer zone. And make sure you have those four Ps. you got to have your plan, which is your preparedness. you got to have your provisions that's going to sustain you. you got to have some sort of power to give you those creature comforts that you need that are going to keep you mentally focused. And then you got to have your protection for it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was thinking um, just to help people kind of visualize also the differences for where you go in between these zones and why you need to be prepared for each one of these areas that you go through. Because if you are in a forest, I mean, I think the probably the easiest thing for people to understand is um, of course, you can walk through a wooded forest when there's nobody around with an AR-15 rifle, right? Like, it, you can dress up like Rambo if you want to. It's not going to matter. Of with course, you're not gonna, yeah, with your bug out bag, right? But, that you never walk around with. <laughs> don't get me started. You know, right. I, I will go on a complete tirade now if we have to do this. So, um, but no, like, I mean, but, you know, obviously you're not going to go down walking down Main Street in the middle of a city with an AR-15, your bug out, you know, bug out bag and you're dressed like Rambo. So, and, and you even you even brought up that if you do go for resupply, even if it's just you're not going to go like, you know, sign into FEMA hotel. But if you're just going for sometimes just for resupply, because look, if it's safe for me to go out and get food that they're handing out, even if I have other food there. If, if I determine that it's safe, in other words, if there's enough there for everybody, it's not going to be a situation like, oh, sorry, we're out of granola bars, and then everybody starts rioting, that's different. But if I go in those areas, I might have to go through a checkpoint where I can't bring my rifle with me, but is there some other weapon? Um, so that's more on the gear side, right? So maybe a having a concealed handgun maybe I can use that or I'm not walking around with a rifle or maybe I can have something that is a, like a Zytel type knife or something that I might have with me that can go through the average um, scanner there. It's not going to be like a police. I mean, I'm sorry. It's not gonna be like an airport, you know, let's, you know, freaking x-ray your balls and just, you know, see every part of your body through there. Right. And I can get through there with like a Zytel knife. Right. So I might be able to use that. And then training wise, cause you brought up, you know, do you, are you able to even use the firearms that you have as an example? But if you don't have any weapon, do you have any hand-to-hand -hand skills whatsoever if you have to fight people off or be able to even fight to your gun? So we cover like, you know, your consideration for your preparations for what you look like, what you carry, and then also what you're trained for. So, you know, I think people, if you start to really sit down and take all the tips that, that Russ has talked about here and start to really kind of like pick apart your own survival plan, better yet, if you're like me and you have a skeptical spouse that just wants to just sharpshoot you on everything, let let somebody that doesn't um, that doesn't necessarily want you to be right about everything, but let them shoot holes in your plan. What about this? What about that? And then if you are passing through areas, if you're in a rural, if you normally live in a rural area, but you find yourself traveling for the for a summer vacation someplace, and you're going through urban areas, kind of you know go ahead and visualize what what would happen if right now. Uh, something hit this area and I had to survive here. I mean, let me make a mental note of what supplies do I have? Um, you know, are we, are we prepared if we only had what we had right now? What could I get to as far as supplies in the area around me right now? So, you know, giving yourself those, those little scenario based training encounters, I think really helps to, for this final phase of leveling up and deciding what would I do in this area since it's so different than mine, you know? Absolutely. 
You know, you mentioned a good thing. You know, if you're going through a checkpoint or checking into a Red Cross camp or a FEMA camp, you know, people kind of freak out about guns, but knives, everybody has a knife, you know, pocket knives, EDC. Uh, I don't know that we'd see metal detectors, but that is a strong possibility. So the Zytel knives, polymer knives are a great idea. Uh, it was just kind of funny. I have this sitting around here. So I, I made my version of like the ultimate survival knife and my wife commandeered it from me. <laughs> and this is it for those who might be able to see the video part of this. Uh, it, it's pretty for those, great. So, for those that can't, it's, it's a, it's like the butcher knife from uh, Mad Max. It's, it's pretty, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy, but uh, I can imagine going into a FEMA camp with a knife like that. that it's it's yeah. some, uh, unwanted attention there. It's I pretty- think so. I think so. Uh, listen, everybody, we've been talking with uh, Russ Adler of fastnation.us about um, basically how to fine tune your own personal survival plan based on the area that you live in, but also other areas that you might be going in and out of. And this really is critically important. Uh, but look, he's got, what I really love is that um, this, this was really taken from what I saw in in Russ's uh, dire course. All right. So it's the disaster insurgency recovery exercise. I know he's got, he's got one coming up. So if you live in the Florida area or you don't mind traveling to the area, highly recommend it because this is the kind of stuff that um, I don't even know where you find this stuff, but, but Russ, I mean, it, it really is a culmination of the, of the varied environments that you have had to sort of thrive in and, uh, and learn the hard way, a lot of these lessons. And it's, it really is a huge asset for people to be able to tap into somebody that has the kind of experience that Russ and his team have. So I highly recommend go, go over to his website and check out the different courses that he has um, because there's a lot there and uh, it's, it's stuff that you're not going to find elsewhere. So again, it's www.fastnation.us. And until our next Modern Combat and Survival broadcast, this is Jeff Anderson saying prepare, train, and survive. This has been Modern Combat and Survival. Survival. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Modern Combat and Survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival.